Welcome to Manufacturing Tech Australia with Shane Williams and Paul Mason, where they share the latest manufacturing and tech news and explore innovative ways to help you improve your business. Hello and welcome to the final episode of Manufacturing Tech Australia for 2023. Paul and I are joined by two esteemed guests today who we'll get to in a second. But I wanted to introduce something a little bit different for today. Paul and I are trying an experiment and that is rather than a typical interview style, we're going for a little bit more of a conversational tone. So we'd love your feedback on what you think about today's episode. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Nigel Dalton and William Hinch to the stage. Welcome, lads. Thanks for having me and having me back. Glad to be here. Yeah, Nigel, so you get to bookend the year after having been our guest in episode one. You get to come back and see if our predictions for 23 are correct. And we've got Will here to hold us to account as a little bit more of a, let's just call it the scientific approach on this episode here. The word of the year, Shane, definitely started with an A. Uh, I thought it was going to be ambiguity, which is what a lot of us spent the year navigating. Is COVID or not? Are we bursting or booming? What, and we just didn't know. And it turned out word of the year started with an A. Artificial intelligence. So I thought I'd start with a bit of a recap about what's going on in manufacturing and especially AI in Australia at the moment. So we're not seeing massive adoption just yet of AI in manufacturing, but we are seeing a bunch of vendors, software vendors, scrambling to add AI capabilities into all their softwares, ERPs, CRMs, and all this kind of stuff. But I guess some of the main things we are seeing, the common trends around predictive maintenance, and we had Brad Parsons from Movis on earlier in the year talking about preventative maintenance. We haven't spoken much in the show about image recognition systems, but the deep learning that's that's coming into some of these systems is really impressive. And Shane and I did did get to do a bit of a tour around UTS and see them counting some sheep and, and grading fish and all sorts of crazy things. Where I see a lot of potential is around inventory management, production scheduling, and that kind of thing. We also spoke with Elton Brown back in episode 16 around supply chain and AI and supply chain, which was really interesting. We spoke with Anna from Amazon all around their AI used in their smart warehouses, inventory management and robotics and things like that. And I guess the, the last one that I wanted to mention is around generative design. So some really cool generative design AI stuff going on with Fusion 360 and also some things like Toffee AM out of the UK. I guess in summary, we're really at the tip of the iceberg and really excited about what we're going to see next year. I've spent the year talking to audiences about the mega trends that are you know, you've experts in this area of manufacturing. It's the climate crisis, aging populations, dramatic changes in social equity and disruptive technologies. Now, all of those are important. Gee, the talking point for the year has been artificial intelligence. And we, we have an enormous number of absolute pocket experts who have uh, done their own research and are pretty sure that ChatGPT is going to take over the world. I think if you look under the hood of that, there is there's, we haven't made as much progress as the vendors of various generative technologies would like us to believe. But at the same time, it has accelerated at a rate I have not seen in terms of tech maturity in a very long time. We have come so far since January this year. And with that capability and new models comes the chance to do some new things. And it's still replacing tasks. It's still, it's not replacing jobs. It's replacing tasks. And Lord knows we've all got some tasks we'd love some help with. And I particularly, my theme is how those four megatrends weave together, aging populations, those kind of things, the tasks that are suddenly capable because we have an aging population. I'm the last baby boomer. 
as a December 63 baby. And there just aren't enough of you youngsters around to do the work. We need all of you to be twice as productive within five years. And for me, the tooling that takes away dumb documentation tasks, that's right in the lean wheelhouse for me. That is, do you know what? This is going to be a big leap forward, but we need it. I've had the privilege of being deep in the AI space, so maybe not as broad-reaching as Nigel has been over the last 12 months, but I've really been looking at what does AI mean for enterprise, small businesses across the board in Australia and globally. And I think one of the things that I found is that in the last 12 months, the acceleration of this technology has taken away from something that was in the garages, the realm of R&D, to something truly in the masses of people who can touch upon it now. Don't have to look too far away from just ChatGPT just to see it really transforming how we think about this technology. And not in just from a technology perspective, but something that we call it as a socio-technology, which is its implications to people, to how people work and how work is done in, in itself. And I'm really excited for this conversation because I think we can start to unpack not only what is the opportunity now, but what I think is the opportunity coming very quickly to us in the next three, six, 12 months. And it will transform how Australian manufacturing can be done. You use a good word there, William, because as a social scientist, I'm fascinated by this. Is it actually socio-technical or techno-social? And I think AI is giving us this new sort of box of technology that is starting to constrain and change human behavior rather than humans adapting technologies as an augmentation of themselves. And we are so at the cutting edge of that debate with generative AI. Something that surprised me through the last 12 months is a word that has popped up more so in this kind of technology space than any other technology space, and that is the word of cognitive. And cognitive is a word reserved for human beings, typically. But now we're seeing cognitive architecture, learning, memory, these concepts that typically are not in the ones and zeros of software and, and hardware and is in the brains between the two ears that I'm talking here, but is now being talked about by business, by people, by enterprises on technology. So your word socio-technology, techno-social, I think is an incredibly worthy debate to have. And I'm really excited to see what, what it really will turn out to in the next 12 months. Something you said earlier, Nigel, that really resonates for me is that the, the big ideas, the things that are coming together and where AI plays. So the, the big idea is, is a sort of aging population and where does AI fit? And I think you merge those two together reminds me of a conversation that Paul and I and Will were having offline a few weeks ago and it was just this concept around we were reflecting on one of our earlier episodes where someone was saying hey look there's an aging population people are going to start leaving the manufacturing space a lot of these small businesses because 90 plus percent of Australian manufacturers are small to medium businesses a lot of these businesses are going to start having the guy who's been there forever who understands the business process end to end moving on mm. and what does that look like for that next generation if you want to pulls you know a big advocate for bringing in robotics and things if you're going to put a robot at a point in the chain but you we've got to understand the end to end and the people who do un typically understand that are leaving and so Paul and I were having this conversation saying we're getting asked about AI but the reality is that most businesses aren't even yet at the point where they digitize their processes so how are they possibly going to be able to program robots and have an AI understand the the supply chain and those sorts of things and will went you know what i reckon some of these and i'm paraphrasing here and he'll say it far better than i will but i reckon there's an opportunity here to use some of these current generation ai models so we talk about the chat gpts to make it real for people who are you know still listening could you use those or an adaptation of those types of models 
to start to extract the information out of people's heads in a, in a format that they're comfortable with, like the conversational tone of how does this work? How did you do that? What happens when this happens? The conversation that you might typically get a BA to write down and then somebody else will try and program that into a system and systemize it and whatnot. Could you just get people in a comfortable conversation with a autonomous, let's call them the cranky little eight-year-old who asks why every time you do something, like the equivalent of that to ask you a bunch of questions to understand how you operate, and create that documentation for you. And then where does that go? And I thought that was really fascinating. If you think about those elements of the big ideas coming together, what could it mean for sustainability and all that sort of stuff? But I guess the question I'm really fascinated by, is that just us spitballing? What is the role of generative AI and data creation in the manufacturing space at the moment? If I was having this conversation about eight months ago, I would be on the exact same view that without data, you can't start AI. Right? You need to have digitization, you need to have audit in place, you need to be cleansed, quality, and et cetera, and et cetera, and et cetera. But guess what? That's like a three-year, four-year, five-year worth of work to get to that point. I think where we're starting now, eight months later, AI has advanced to a state where we can start to flip that on its head. Can we start using the observing type capabilities of generative AI and the leading agents of today to start observing the world and learning without that prerequisite data? What is all of that, right? If you could observe the world and construct your own learnings, you construct your own data points, we could then start synthesizing into constructs that other AIs can start to use. And not even just other AIs, other humans could use. The moment we think about that, we can then start thinking about, if that's the case, is there areas where I can start thinking about using AIs today, despite my lack of data, but to at least get ahead and, get, and start moving the needle forward and driving transformation as a whole. And ultimately, in either scenario, if it's employed or not, you've got data or not, my biggest challenge is finding people who have an intelligent question to ask. And a part of this drama is the complexity of modern businesses. For the first time in 300, 400 years of industrial history, the captains of industry have no idea how the sausages are made in their factory because it is huge amounts of code. It is huge amount of automated processes. And honestly, they're just marketers with CEO on the door. And that's inevitable because they are dealing with that complex customer-facing side of it. And this is one of the crises. They don't actually don't know what questions to ask. And that I go to hackathons, I go to all these things where AI is going to be awesome. And they get the tool and, and, and they look around each other and go, what problem do we want to solve? Nobody's sitting down and going, where in my production line do I have friction? They need a good solid lesson in Lean 101, which is how's the factory laid out? And where's it not working? Let's apply AI there. I don't know any agencies at all who have a problem generating social media content that's worth buying an AI for. I think you take it one step further. We think about it as AI is how do you use AI to transform that end-to-end, -end, that transform the whole process? Can you reimagine it with AI in the loop and not just using AI to fix those small little problems? And I think that's what we're seeing in the market today is everyone is gravitating to those small little problems. And as a result, as you said, again, the vendors that are building new products and new offerings for those small problems, they don't add the true value that the manufacturers of Australia are looking for. Yeah, I think chatting with Ty Osborne in the last podcast, uh, we were talking about this, how there's so many different little solutions, so many different small AI solutions for little problems. And, and sometimes we need to take a step back and dissect the actual problem into chunks, like you would a project and plan it out. And then look at, if you're going to use AI for certain sections of it, look at specific tools to solve those problems rather than 
you know, trying to get one thing to solve, be the mother of all AI tools to solve everything. The interesting thing for me as the elder of the tribe here is all this was predicted in the 90s. A fellow called Marshall McLuhan, and he had a mate, Nicholas Negroponte. So you Google those old bugs, and they were the, really the first people who started talking about a digital era coming forward. So they were looking at media, and they were going, what, what happens in media, say a newspaper? It's transitioning from a purely cellulose, it's made of atoms, and we used to big, and you folded the pages out and all that kind of stuff. That's the original state. The first stage of digital transformation was you scanned those pages, paid a PDF and emailed them to people and you consumed that service, that those things just on your screen instead. And you literally, everyone was on a race to make a, a user interface that allowed you to physically turn it on the screen as well. That's phase two of maturity stage three as you go, actually, we're going to atomize every atom and chunk of that, every word, every photograph, caption. And, and that's so much of the world of media and digital I've been part of, whether it was Lonely Planet, whether it was REA Group, otherwise, atomize and store every component of the content that way. Very few people have got to phase four of the McLuhan-Negroponte transformation, which is you now apply AI to all of that volume of the content and the user's situation, and you match, personalize, and deliver all the services, just as William was saying. You re-engineer and rethink the entire model and maybe it, it's as simple as I get my news on my watch, but that's the state. We're at stage four now. It's possible with this level of AI. I love those ethical use cases where you've got people who have a range of abilities based by experience. Getting everyone up in capability, I'm passionate about. The case study I have seen is in call center service, not a manufacturing situation, but knowledge is the same in both. And using good semantic techniques to analyze huge volumes of conversations because you get the normal variation in customer satisfaction out the other end of a call center experience. What does Jenny do, despite having six years experience with the products, what does she do and say that makes her so effective with outcomes? And how can we analyze that with some kind of thing and create scripts and create knowledge in a way like it's just the classic thing is she's only going to really spread that one-to-one -one in, in a human-to-human -human environment of teaching. She can It goes one-to-many and then every machine teaches every other machine and you lift the whole game. And I love that kind of stuff. That's actually going to be necessary. There are so few millennials in comparison to the retiring boomers, they genuinely need to be twice as productive. I think doctors are another great case study where that's probably my highlight of the year in terms of machine learning and generative AI capability is in an experiment in the United States. The machines surpassed the performance of general practitioners as being judged on empathy and correctly diagnosing. Up until about February, they lost every time to the humans and no aspersions cast upon on GPs, but machines now doing it better. And that solves an enormous problem for places like Australia, where you can't get a GP in rural Australia. So let's use those kind of cool tools there. I love this debate when it comes to what is the implication of AI in the workplace? Is it going to be taking the jobs away? Is it going to be automating processes left, front, and center? Or is it going to be playing a role in, as you said, Nigel, uplifting the capability of the workforce as a whole to a level that they weren't before? And to tackle into your health example, I was in a talk a couple of weeks ago talking about AI in diagnostic of radiology. And they found that the AI that is used to help and support doctors in looking at radio scans for cancer found that those who used AI in the process actually learned faster than they typically would have done if they didn't use AI. So it's not just in this scenario where AI is 
uh, replacing the doctor or replacing their skill set, but really it's augmenting and accelerating their learning pathway so they can be more productive, they can focus on the edge cases, and they can provide the care that is typically forgotten about in the healthcare industry. Yeah, I think if you look at the year, I think AI has ended this year with a public relations problem, not a technology problem. And Kara Swisher's end of year review, oh, nailed it, absolutely. She basically said it has just increased the power of the wave of the current web and digital world, which is creating assisted living for millennials. That is the the commercial motivation of every damn startup and every damn technologist in the world. And that's a big disappointment. And so much of the noise and PR around generative AI has been around making futile and stupid things whilst we get distracted from the big value adds. I love it because it's brought people to the table of a conversation about being data-led, data-informed, moderating all sorts of things and improving others. But I don't know, I, I described it to someone as a, it's, it's a race down a, an alleyway that has a brick wall at the end in most cases with corporate Australia. It's a sprint down there talking about generative and AI and call centers and then you hit the wall and the brick wall is, we have no data. Interestingly, I saw an article yesterday that said, oh, there's the world's first fully AI generated news station called Channel One and it's video content, but it's an AI generated news presenter who's delivering AI generated news. And there's all this, oh, who's going to control it? How are you going to know it's not telling lies and all this sort of stuff? And I went, I reckon there's a good chance that the stuff they're mimicking is already telling lies or already is already biased. And maybe there's a school of thought that says here, it's just going to have an unbiased view of the news and just present it. But who knows? The bias factor's never gone away. And and I think we're in for an in 2024. I, mean, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but 2024, I am pumped for because we're going into the most artificially intelligently driven election in the history of the world in the United States. And it's going to be 80% crap coming out of chat GPT from what I can figure out. And that's just going to be amazing. There'll be a lot of counter technologies built. But as humans, we believe what we want to believe. Watch this space. I guess the level of deep fakes is going to be out of control, right? We're not going to know what's real and what's not. That's here now. When criminals adopt the technology, you know it's good. And we've seen that already. So the voice matching, the picture matching, I don't know about you lot, but I've, I've got an 89-year-old dad. He's got the safe question. Like if a grandchild rings up saying, oh, I'm in trouble with my university fees, I need $500, he has to ask a question. Because we've just reached that state of the world where the scams powered by AI are epic. Two-factor authentication on your family. That's crazy. Oh, it's probably not as silly as it sounds when you think about where the crims are going. In the interest of time, I might move us into another topic, which is an extension of the one we're talking about, right? So we're talking about now generating information and generating systems and this first generation, if you like. I think the next topic is probably AI decision-making. And we were speaking to Elton Brown back in episode 16 around his view on AI and supply chain. And he was discussing where he thought there was potential for the AIs to start to make strategic decisions based on a set of priorities. What are we chasing? Is it revenue? Is it sales? Is it inventory? What is it that it wants to do? And so rather than the supply chain manager getting up in the morning, coming into the office and running a bunch of reports and thinking about stuff and trying to work out what the best course of action is, that the AIs have already churned through all that data overnight and have presented you with the two or three options telling you what the consequences of each of those might be to allow you to make that decision at the beginning of the day and be significantly further ahead. 
I think it's interesting when you talk about earlier making the millennials more efficient. I think that's where he was envisaging this plan. But I'd love your view, William, on sort of the risks around just handing the keys over to the AI and going, you start making decisions. I think the question here that boils down to is what is a decision? And I think if you think back to the manufacturers and what they've done in the past is we're quite familiar using technology to automate a level of decisioning. They just happen to be not in the same level of scale and complexity that is now evident and available through the AI technologies today. It's called a paradigm shift to a new realm of complexity of decision-making at a speed of veracity that is never seen before in the history of humankind requires management. One view on how to do that, I believe, and I truly believe, is the lens of risk management. It's not the lens of risk management to stop and pause AI, because we all know the benefits there of driving productivity are real there. The lens of risk management provides a frame, in my opinion, that allows you to look through all the different facets of how a decision could impact a particular organization, a particular process, a particular person. For some of the things that we already mentioned today, like bias, incorrect information, that lens allows you to then to construct what I believe as a series of dials that you can dial up and dial down to drive and influence and guide the decisions that AIs are making from this point onwards. We certainly don't have a great history. And one of the dramas of those captains of industry not understanding how sausages are made anymore is should have gone to the lecture on risk and bias, but skipped that one and, and went to the one on doing a startup instead. And we are littered. Where the I just chat GPT is one chapter in a long running series of 50 years of improvement of technologies that enable us to apply logic to very large sets and situations. We got a terrible record with decisions like sentencing of criminals, for example. And it's simply and, and facial recognition of citizens and the likelihood of them committing a crime. That's here and now. That stuff's got to be debated again. Definitely. And it's almost AI is great at making all these decisions based off data, but how do we add that human element into it to add some sanity check into there? So I guess that's part of the puzzle we're trying to solve. I'll just bring it back to earth a little bit around the manufacturing side and AI and that kind of thing. So, Will, I guess, based on what you've seen, when you're working with businesses and they're trying to solve some of their business problems, what are some of the things that you recommend to them around this and around the risk mitigation? And what are you telling businesses that they need to do apart from get educated on this kind of stuff? And what's the on the ground advice that I guess you could give our listeners on that? Yeah, there's a couple of things I would point to. Firstly is have a holistic view on what the implications of AI are. Yes, look at the benefits, find the right places to use it, find the places to drive value because that's where you make the real difference in your business in terms of driving efficiency and productivity. But also look across the board in terms of what would it mean from a risk perspective in the business? I do think something I would say to many businesses in Australia is, yes, consider the ethics and bias considerations, but then also think about the non-ethics and non-biased issues of AI, such as reputation, financial risk, branding risk, and many other factors of driving operations on a day-to-day basis. The other thing that I would like to say is, in Australia, we have a tendency to purchase AI from vendors a lot more than we build AI. Typically, just nature of our country and nature of the industry, but it is always a mix. Not everyone builds their own AIs. There's a lot of purchases from vendors and other providers out there. The challenges with AI technology is they typically are effectively black boxes. Yes, there are a lot of research coming out there in terms of unraveling this black box and providing more visibility into it. But the challenge is not a technology challenge. The challenge is a business challenge on how do I know 
what that black box is doing from a decision-making perspective. So the questions that I would then suggest for listeners to think about is, what are the kind of things you want to ask your vendors to provide proof of, to provide assurance that the AIs are they're achieving or acting in the manner that you wish they to act for the purpose of an outcome of your business? If you're plugged into one of those black boxes that William's talking about, the rate of change on those is unprecedentedly high for software. Shane, you used to suffer through a kind of a, a yearly enterprise release of an update and you'd have a ton of time to do it. I think GPT's changed majorly six times this year. And if you were plugged into the old API, bad luck, get working. We're working on Musk time now. Something that I like to say to many of the folks I have the privilege to talk to is that big misconception of AI is treating it like software. The challenge with treating it like software is you think that you buy it for release one or release 2.5, it stays as release 2.5 until you, until you make a change. What creates the benefit of AI is the fact that it's dynamic. The fact that it learns in situ, it can be quite generalized and adapt to various situations, whether it was designed for or not designed for. But that flexibility typically is what drives a lot of the value that AI can bring. But that flexibility and that dynamicism creates issues that businesses and Australian manufacturers, particularly if you're looking to buy AI from vendors, needs to manage for. Because you buy it for one day, you run your test and you run it, they give you assurance that it's working as expected. Come three weeks, four weeks, five weeks later, the environment changes, data changes, the outcome changes, new models are get adopted. And they may not know exactly how it will change because it wasn't designed for particular scenarios. So the question becomes, just because you've now effectively outsourced the AI capability to a third party, thinking that you've also outsourced risk to a third party, that is no longer true. The risk is still within your camp and something that you need to manage and work for, even if you are buying software from third party. So I guess to, to Paul's earlier point about what's practical, it seems like the advice is regardless of what you're buying, it's caveat emptor, right? Understand what it is that you're buying and ask the right questions. How does this thing work? How do I know I've got control over it? How do I know it's acting in my best interest? Can you explain to me how it makes decisions? They may or may not want to share this information with you, but I think at least that's your starting point in terms of things you ought to be asking, whether, whether they want to answer that question and then whether you want to deal with someone who won't is largely up to you, right? I think the, the intelligence and the next level of this is really where we're looking at custom GPTs, where we can feed in a whole organization's data, finance, HR, product design, all this stuff into a single GPT. And I saw a great example the other day. And they really seem to be getting this whole black box thing. They're like, okay, every piece of data you put into this machine, we're going to trace every single part. We're going to date code everything. So you've got full traceability on which exact data has changed that model and what the outcomes are. So I think corporate AI vendors are now starting to get the message on this stuff and trying to support that side of things. But I think that is really where that's going to be the next level when you're using your actual IP and intelligence and smarts within your organization and then just using that gpt to extract all the data out of it ask it the right things you still need to be able to properly query um, the gpt engine properly to get that data out but it's basically things like we've got a new job starting next week write me a pd and write me an ad and put all the current information and salaries in it for me or all this kind of current extraction of all our company intelligence within that data set it's still going to be dependent on how good the company is to give it the right answers, as opposed to being a generic solution like a chat GPT that gives everyone the same solution. 
So I guess to start to try and bring some of this to a close, Nigel, do you want to give us a couple of key takeaways based on the conversation from your side? For me, I'm ending the year as I started concerned about those massive social trends, climate crisis, aging population, social equity, and the disruptive technologies. The thread that runs through them is this brand new potential we have around models that can do a lot of very hard lifting in, in data and tech and, and take some weight, make people more productive, and hopefully solve some of those complex climate problems we're having, increase the productivity of the youngsters to serve an ever-growing population. And just along the way, there's going to be scandals, there's going to be bullshit, there's going to be regulation, and it's just going to happen fast. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Excellent. What about you, Will? Yeah, my whole year has been talking to enterprises and customers about, is it really about doing more AI or is it doing AI well? They're mutually exclusive things. So I think over the next 12 months, many organizations are going to start thinking about what does it actually mean to implement AI in a meaningful and impactful way for their business, not just doing the extra one or the another one and just putting, building the pipeline. And I think without that, I do expect that in the next 12 months, at least this is my prediction, that someone would hit the media in a very big way of doing AI wrong. And that would create the impetus for many organizations and business owners out there to start thinking about how are they doing it and to start thinking about what do they need to change in order so that they're not also the next person on the PR circuit. So I think my reflection on this conversation is, I think we're just scratching the surface of the next wave of, let's call it, what does AI mean? I think some of the questions we've asked today around challenging our own perception of what does it take to get started, I think is really interesting. I don't want necessarily for people to leave listening to this conversation thinking, oh, good, I don't need to write documentation anymore because the robots are just going to take care of that for me this year. We're probably not quite there yet. I think it's a it's an interesting hypothesis, and I reckon we're probably not far away from being able to achieve it. But by the same token, don't just assume that next year the robots are going to solve all your problems of the transfer of knowledge from people leaving the organization. I think the ethical considerations around this stuff are interesting for me. The concept of if you're starting to hand decision-making over to machines, then where do you draw the line? Is it an ethical conversation? Is it a risk-based approach? What does that mean for business owners? And some of the practical stuff around if you're going to buy this stuff, because typically I imagine if you're an SME manufacturer, you're not going to be building it. So if you're going to buy this stuff, who are you buying it from? How is it built? Who's building it? How does it make decisions? And can you show me how it's acting in my best interest? I think are probably the interesting takeaways for me. Yeah, I commend as a as just as an experience, go to the NGV, to the Triennale, the giant exhibition that they've got on in Melbourne here, and just go and sit quietly in the room where they've got the three Boston Dynamics spot robots, observing people, drawing their pictures, activating in the space, because it's sitting comfortably alongside these technologies, whether they're expressed as a robot or they're expressed as an algorithm that's changing your work. We've all got to do that. We've all got to lean into that. And that is just life in the 21st century. I think, yeah, next year and beyond is what's really exciting because I think, as a lot of people have said, we haven't really even imagined yet what these applications are going to be and where this is going to take us. Interesting you bring up Spot, Nigel. I was just talking earlier today about how Boston Dynamics actually integrated ChatGPT with their Spot robot and it was walking around being a, a virtual tour guide. So it's got cameras to get situational awareness it's moving around with its robotics it's then talking to humans via chat gpt and like a natural language interface so now just if you see that you just go wow mind blown if we can now do that 
what else is possible. So I'm really excited about what we're going to see. And I'm just hoping that all the things we've spoken about today around the ethics and just getting things right, making people accountable and making the right decisions to, to guide things safely is going to be on top of the agenda. So, gents, we'll probably call it there. Thanks for uh, joining us on our last episode of the season. Nigel, thanks for helping us bookend from an early guest on our show. And uh, thank you to listeners for listening. We appreciate you subscribing and uh, make sure you do so that you can catch us in 2024. And we appreciate you sharing this on your socials. Have a great break and we'll see you next year. Awesome. See you, everyone. Thanks, Nigel. We'll see you in 2024. Thanks a lot, guys. See you, fellas. Thanks for tuning in to Manufacturing Tech Australia with Shane and Paul, recorded on the traditional lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri people. For more information, jump on the manufacturingtech.au website. Remember to hit the follow button to join us again next time as we continue to explore the intersection of manufacturing and technology.